Good morning. Pray with me, will you? Father, it's good to come together and to sing your praise, to be reminded of aspects of your character that we need to have in the forefront of our minds. As we think about your amazing worth, far beyond anything that this world has to offer. And so I pray that you would give us a perspective on the things of this world, a perspective that is in light of eternity, and help us then to live full out for your honor and your glory as we hold loosely the things that you have given to us and use them for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember early in my ministry, uh, sitting uh, at the picnic table of my friend Tom, uh, we were outside at his picnic table outside his little uh, brown painted cinder block house. Uh, I was there with my young family and Tom's family was there, uh, along with a Nigerian student named Isaac who Tom had sponsored through his education here in this country. And with Isaac that day was his wife, his new bride, Abigail. And we got to meet Abigail that day, and um, he wanted to introduce Abigail to all of us and to celebrate with her what God had done in his life and, and now in hers as well. We were outside at the picnic table because I don't think we would all fit in Tom's little cinder block house. Carol, his wife, brought out a very simple meal. And I don't think I'll ever forget Tom's table grace that day over that very simple meal. Among the other things that he said, he thanked God for making us rich in the things that count. Rich in the things that count. None of us had any accumulated wealth by that point, and yet in Christ we were rich. We we're rich in the things that count. We're looking at a, a passage of scripture today that gives instructions for people who are materially rich. And the fact of the matter is that we as 21st century Americans are materially rich. Uh, we are among the richest people uh, that the world has known from a material perspective. Uh, even in this present age, we are among the world's most wealthy. Uh, let me break that down to you in terms of uh, present day figures. If you made more than uh, $2,138 last year, probably most of us, right? You are in the top 50% of the world's wealth. And the poverty line in America, by the way, last year was $12,880. That's poverty. And so even our poverty is riches to the world. If you made $61,000 last year, you are among the top 10% of the world's wealthy. And if you made $510,000 last year, and I know a few people who did, 
you're among the top 1% of the world's wealthy. And so when Paul addresses people in this passage who are rich in this present age, he's speaking to all of us. We're rich in this present age. We just want to be sure that we're rich in the things that count. So two points this morning. First, uh, Paul gives a charge to us rich folk. And, and then the second has to do with uh, what happens when we heed that charge. Paul begins in verses 17 and 18 with this charge to us rich folk. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. Notice first that Paul's comments in this section are for those who are wealthy. A little different than the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago in verses 9 and 10 that talks about people who want to get wealthy, people who want to get rich. Uh, Paul doesn't condemn people who have earthly resources. It's no sin to be wealthy. He just warns us about loving those resources too much. And he's going to challenge us in this section to use them well. But the first thing he does is he reminds us of how short-term those things are. His warning is for those who are rich in this present age. And this present age is limited. And apart from Christ, we are only rich in this brief present age. Apart from Christ, we have no hope for the age to come, which is where Paul wants us to set our hope. Randy Alcorn wrote a book a few years ago called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's a good read. I'd recommend it. In it, he says this, imagine you are a northerner living in the south near the end of the Civil War. Okay, get the framework there. You know the end of the war is coming. It's just a matter of time. The signs are getting more obvious every day. So, here's this question. How much Confederate currency do you want to have? If you're smart, you want just enough to get you to the end of the war, right? Because when the war is over, all of that stuff will be worthless. You don't want to get stuck with a big pile of it when the war is over and the South loses. Amassing a lot of Confederate money at the end of the Civil War would be a foolish thing to do. Kind of like someone worrying about his investments when he is on his deathbed. This present age, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, is passing away. And the riches we accumulate in it are temporary. And so after that reminder, Paul goes on to address three aspects of our life with regard to these temporary riches. Our attitude, our outlook, and our actions. First, let's look at what he says about our actions. He says in verse 17 that we should not be haughty with regard to our possessions. Don't be haughty. Don't be high-minded. Don't be highfalutin. There's a word for you. 
Kids, if you're doing a word search, this is a freebie for you, okay? Here, I'm giving you a gift. Highfalutin, you can mark it off as, yes, he said it, you know? Highfalutin. Look that one up. It's really kind of a neat word. It's, it's not two words. It's not even two words hyphenated. It's, it's one word, and it ends in the letter N, not in G, not in an apostrophe. It's highfalutin, and it's spelled right. So kids, the, your gift this morning. Don't be highfalutin. Don't let your wealth go to your head. Don't think you are superior to someone who has less than you. That's the idea. And it is so easy to get haughty. It is so easy to get highfalutin. All we need to do is lose sight of the grace of God and come to think that we deserve all that we have. We need to remind ourselves that what we deserve is wrath. The wrath of God is what we deserve. The wrath of God is what we have earned on our own. And the cup that we have that is filled to overflowing with blessing, or that that might be half full, or we might look at as half empty, that cup had first to be emptied of wrath before it could be given to us full of blessing. And Jesus drank that bitter cup of wrath when he went to the cross and paid for our sins, emptying that cup entirely. And God filled it with blessing and gave it to us. So don't be haughty. Don't be highfalutin. All the blessings you have come by the grace of God. And so when we see someone who has very little, when someone comes up to us on the street and asks us for money, we can't look down on that person. We need to remind ourselves, but by the grace of God, I am that person. Paul speaks first to our attitude and says, don't be haughty. Then he speaks to our outlook and says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't let your money become your hope. Hope is such a rich word theologically in the New Testament. It is so rich. It is much, much more than wishful thinking. It has to do with what we are banking on for our future. And I use the word literally. What are you banking on for your eternal future. In the further thought quest section, I've listed some verses that you can look up to get an understanding of how the New Testament uses this rich word, hope. It's a confident expectation of what is yet to come. That's our hope. We put our, our hope in. And the New Testament use of this word, hope, points us beyond this limited present age to the age that is to come. Riches are too fleeting to be our hope. They're uncertain, Paul says in verse 17. They can be gone tomorrow. I serve on the board of uh, the Free Church's retirement plan, and we have to take incredible measures to diversify the portfolios and and to prepare for all sorts of contingencies because riches are uncertain. 
Paul says, don't hope in them. Hope instead in God. While riches are uncertain, he is certain. He is unchanging. And he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's no sin to enjoy the blessings that come from God's hand. We regard all the good things in our lives as blessing from his hand, and we thank him for them. You'll remember when we were looking at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy that this church in Ephesus had a problem with something called asceticism. And asceticism is the harsh treatment of the body, depriving oneself of um, uh, pleasures, depriving oneself even of necessities in order to to exert rigorous discipline on this body, which the Greeks saw as a prison trapping our soul. They longed to be set free from it. And so this asceticism problem uh, overlooked the blessings that God gives. Uh, And Paul addresses it in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and says, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Don't reject it. Thank God for it. Bless his name for having given it to you. And so the answer to materialism isn't asceticism. It's a perspective that sees these things as good gifts from a loving father. Thanking him for those things, using them for his glory, not placing our hope in them. We can enjoy what comes from his hand, but we hold it loosely in our own. Our hope is never in the gifts, but only in the giver. That's our outlook. So Paul addresses first our attitude, then our outlook, and then our actions. And he's going to list several things here in verse 18 regarding our actions. And I think they actually follow a bit of a sequence here. And the first thing he says to rich people to do is to do good. Do good. That's one word in the Greek. And at the root of it, is, is a word for good in Greek. There are, there are two words for good in Greek. Now, this is the word agathos, which means morally good. Morally good. Do things that are morally good. And as the world's wealthy that we are, we're in a great position to do a lot of good with the things we possess. We really are. When you think about it, you realize that people who are in basic survival mode don't have the resources to do all of the things we are able to do, all of the things we've been positioned to do. Even time is a resource that they don't have much of. All of theirs is spent in trying to make ends meet. We've got this luxury called discretionary time, and we can choose how we want to use it. We can use our discretionary time for God's glory. What if we took just five minutes a day of discretionary time and dedicated it to God's glory by doing morally good things for people? You know, what do you suppose you could do in in five minutes? Actually, you could make a big difference in five minutes. A short phone call. 
a handwritten note, even a, an email or a text could make a big difference in somebody's life. So Paul starts by saying, do good, do morally good things. And then he goes on to saying, be rich in good works. And this is the other Greek word, uh, kalos, which means helpful things. So there are the morally good things and then there are the helpful things and we're to be doing both. He says, be rich in helpful things. Do what is helpful. It doesn't take great wealth to be rich in good works. Really doesn't. You don't have to have much in terms of the world's goods to be able to do helpful things. And it can be actually a lot of fun. Sometimes in winter, uh, when I go out to my car and have to scrape the windshield in a parking lot, uh, I just kind of look to the left and the right and, and see if there's maybe another one or two that I can scrape if I've got time. It's just kind of fun. And the fun for me kind of comes in driving out of the parking lot and imagining that person coming out to his car and going, what's this? What, what happened? How'd that happen? I didn't do that. Just kind of a, a fun thing. Now, you know, it doesn't earn me anything with God. It doesn't put me in his favor. I'm already in his favor by his grace. And all I'm seeking to do is spread a little bit of that grace around. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous is next, he says. And this word generous implies sharing, sharing. Be generous in sharing. Have you seen the, the Thrivent uh, commercials about live generously? Got the t-shirt? I got the Thrivent t-shirt that says live generously. Good, good little campaign. What's it look like to live generously? It's doing good works with our money. So do morally good things, do helpful things, do good things with your money. I had a friend who used to like to pay for the car behind him when he was at a toll booth on the Illinois toll road. And he'd tell the toll booth operator, my best friend is coming up behind me, would you take his toll out of this money as well? And then he'd drive off and look in the rearview mirror and watch the operator try to explain to this total stranger that his best friend was in the car in front of him. He used to have a lot of fun doing that. I talked to another friend, Tina and I were talking to her recently, who got cut off at a McDonald's drive through You know how there's two lanes that merge into one and, and she had placed her order and this other person uh, placed their order but zipped into this slot in front of her and cut her off and she was so mad. You know, she was gonna honk her horn, she was gonna yell something out the window but she thought, bad Christian witness, no, I'll just sit here and steam. And... <laughs> And so she got up to the window to pay for her order and found out that the person who cut her off did it already, paid for her order. It's probably why she cut her off. Didn't know her, but uh, she was so glad she didn't honk her horn, right? <laughs> Generous, doing good works with our money. And then the final piece is be ready to share. Be ready to share. And again, he's talking about generosity, but now it's with an emphasis on putting ourselves in a position where we're ready to do it. We had some friends visit us last Sunday for church and stayed for the afternoon with us, and we took them on a little walk downtown Janesville, 
And uh, while we were out walking, a police car drove by and turned the corner and just pulled to the curb and stopped. I guess he was working on something. And my friend reached for his wallet and talked to his 15-year-old son and said, let's go. And the two of them broke off from our little huddle and, and walked to the police car. And we kind of turned to his wife and said, what was that about? She goes, oh, he carries a stack of Culver's cards for occasions like this. And it's his way of saying thanks. We appreciate you. We appreciate what you're doing. He is ready to share. And, and that's a great idea, not only with regard to police officers, but also regarding the times when someone approaches you and asks you for money, asks you for assistance. Hey, I got this Culver's card. Would you be interested in that? Be ready to share. So Paul addresses uh, our actions and says, do what's morally good, do what's helpful, uh, do it with your money, and be ready to do it. Now, that's the charge Paul gives to us rich folk. It has to do with our attitude, our outlook, and our actions. What happens when we heed the charge? Paul says three things happen when we heed the charge. First, we store up treasure. Paul borrows the words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. They were read earlier. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, excuse me, destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think of Randy Alcorn's illustration about a northerner living in the south at the end of the Civil War. Realize he would be smart not to accumulate more Confederate money than he would need just to get through the end of the war, but he would be smarter still to build up his bank account in, the, in a, a bank up north. That's where the currency will last. So store up treasure in heaven. There's a story, uh, fully apocryphal, uh, about uh, a wealthy man who lived in a mansion his whole life and when he died, went to heaven and was shown his dwelling. And it was a little shack. And he asked, so why do I have such a meager dwelling for eternity? And the guy said, it's all you set up. We need to send up treasure and we store up treasure in heaven when we do. And then the second thing Paul said we do is we build a foundation for the future. What future, you ask? Eternity. Eternity. It puts a whole different twist on the idea of putting something away for the future. What we're doing is we're taking funds from the present age and entrusting them to God for the age to come. What's it take to do that? What's it take? It takes faith to do that, right? Faith has been described as deferred gratification. We can say no to things right now because we've said yes to something greater that's in the future. It takes faith to do that, to build a foundation for the future. And when we do that, the third thing happens we experience real life. 
Paul says we take hold of that which is truly life. We become rich in the things that count. Real life, that which is truly life. It's a similar construction to one we saw in chapter five, verses three and 16, where he speaks about widows who are truly widows. Real life, life that is really life. So what does Paul mean by that? Is he talking only about the life we'll experience in God's presence when this earthly life is over? No, I think he's telling us that the key to really living this life on this earth is having a good foundation in the next. We get to build that up. When we have confidence in what is to come, we can live this life full out for the glory of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if we can't say the latter part of that with confidence, we won't live the first part of that. If we can't say, for me, the real gain is coming when this life is over, we won't live this life full out. But when we know that to die is gain, we can live this life full out for Christ. Just last week, we saw Paul encourage Timothy in verse 12 to take hold of eternal life. What was Paul saying to Timothy at that point? Was he saying, get ready for when you die? Take hold of eternal life, Timothy. Was he trying to convert him? He was a pastor. Take hold of eternal life. He wasn't just talking about what happens when Timothy dies. He was encouraging him to take hold of eternal life right now in all of its fullness, to realize that for the believer, eternal life has already begun. Jesus defined it for us in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he said, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It begins when we put our trust in Christ It's already begun for us in him. And here in verse 19, Paul is talking about taking hold of life that is truly life, living full out because we can hold our possessions loosely, our treasures in heaven. Mark Buchanan, a Canadian pastor, wrote a book called Things Unseen. It's a good read. In it, he points out that those who are most focused on the next life are the ones who've made the biggest difference in this life. Have you ever heard someone described as so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good? Have you ever had that one leveled against you? What do you think about that? It's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's absolutely wrong. In fact, the opposite is true. It's the people who are focused on what is eternal who can really live this life to the full. We can hold earthly things loosely because we know that our treasure's in heaven. And because of that, we can live this life fully, freely, fearlessly. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves 
who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Good word. We who trust in Christ can hold our possessions loosely. We can live full out because of the riches that we have in heaven, riches that we can add to by how we live on earth. So store up treasure there. Build a good foundation. Take hold of life that is truly life. When I was a kid, in a kind of a Bible school or Bible uh, club setting, I remember singing a little song. You may recognize it. I'm not going to sing it for you, but the lyrics were, Hallelujah, 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 praise ye the Lord. Right? Remember that one? I see some people getting nervous right now. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. But you see, what we used to do is we'd pit the boys against the girls, and you know, like the, the girls would have hallelujah, hallelujah, you know, and, and that, the hallelujah part, and the guys would have praise ye the Lord, you know, and, and we would stand when we did our part. And so we're just popping up and down and up and down the whole time. And I, I, I kind of got that feeling when I was reading through this passage this week and thinking about the word rich. I mean, if we had to change position, standing or sitting, every time the word rich came up in this, we'd get a lot of exercise in this passage. Because Paul has a lot to say about riches and what true riches are and who's rich and how we can live richly. In, in fact, let me just walk you through it, and, and I'll, I'll maybe pause when we hit the word rich and we can say it together. We won't have to stand. But as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure. I mean, it's not riches, but it's a close word to it. For themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's wonderful. We are materially rich. But Paul reminds us that riches can't be where we set our hope. Too fleeting. We set our hope instead on God who richly provides for us. And when uh, we are rich in good works, we build a foundation for the future. And when we do that, we can experience the adventure of really living a life given wholly to the cause of Christ Experiencing for ourselves what caused Paul to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You'll find some questions for further thought on the flip side of your sermon notes. I hope you'll make use of those sometime this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus drank the cup of wrath 
that we deserve and filled it instead with blessing, that you have given us good things to enjoy, but you have made us stewards of those good things and you have given them to us to share as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would recognize just how blessed we are and then recognize that we were blessed to be a blessing. And by that blessing, we may experience the adventure of living the kind of life that can only be lived when someone knows that the real treasure is yet ahead. So help us, Lord, to enjoy these good gifts from your hand, to thank you for them, to use, you, use them for your glory, and then not to put our trust in them, but to put our trust, our hope, fully in you, and to live the adventure of one who can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In Jesus' name, amen.